Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to experience the Gut Check Project, talking science, health, and innovation that you can actually use. But this isn't just another health show. No, no. We're here to have fun and make your time enjoyable. And you like to have fun, right? Well, while you are enjoying yourself, know that even though the GCP covers some health topics with healthcare pros, we are not your doctors. So use our show to entertain your mind and not for medical advice. And hey, now, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family, Ken thank Brown you so much for joining Eric us. Rieger. I'm your host, Eric Rieger, joined by this GI man, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, what's happening? Not a whole lot on my end personally, but from a Gut Check Project perspective, this is super exciting. We got an incredible show because I love being the stupidest person in a room. And the doctor that we have on today is absolutely brilliant. And I cannot wait to hear everything about what she has to say. Very like-minded. She is forward thinking and is all about how do we protect the future. So very excited. There we go. We were just changing your visual there so the whole world can see the wonderful Dr. Kate Shanahan. So Dr. Kate is a board certified family physician with over 20 years of clinical experience. And she is a New York Times bestselling author of The Fat Burn Fix, Deep Nutrition and Food Rules. After getting her bachelor's of science in biology from Rutgers University, she trained in biochemistry and genetics at Cornell University's graduate school before she attended Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. She then practiced in Hawaii for over 10 years where she studied ethnobotany and culinary habits. She applied her learning and expertise in these scientific fields to write Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food, together with Dr. Tim DeFrancesco and NBA legend, NBA legend Gary Vitti. She created the Pro Nutrition Program for the LA Lakers and helped forge a partnership between Whole Foods Market and numerous NBA teams. Her expertise is fixing the underlying problems that cause metabolic damage and inflammation, leading to autoimmunity, weight gain, diabetes, cancer, and accelerated aging. Her mission is to disrupt the myths, which is why we love you, because that's what we do here a lot on the Gut Check Project. These myths have been keeping people sick for decades, and she wants to empower them to plug their bodies into the most powerful technology on earth, nature. Dr. Kate, welcome to the Gut Check Project. Thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is awesome. Uh, so for our viewers, listeners, I y'all know that I've been a big drkate.com fan for quite some time. She's got excellent deep dives into some just i would say that for certainly the mainstream media or legacy media is uh quite controversial it's not addressed and it could be anything from uh i think your latest entry had something to do with uh, the blue zones and the blue zone uh, breakdown which of course we've referenced on here before about what blue zone diets do what their body habitus may look like and then of course you had some awesome breakdowns on the hateful eight, the the oils that we all need to avoid in our uh, added food, et cetera. Quite honestly, what set you on the path of going to med school and then discovering that you that you had this need that's been clearly unaddressed and you're kind of pioneering this pathway? Well, I went to medical school because I just love the idea of being able to uh, understand how the human body works. I just think it's so amazing. I think 
like all of the natural world is amazing. And then I like the human body is kind of part of the natural world. And also at the same time, one of the most amazing expressions of the natural world. So I was hoping to learn about the root cause of my own like problems that I'd been suffering from because I was an athlete in high school and college. And I kept getting recurring like shin splints and tendonitis, and these are connective tissue injuries. And I figured there must have been something wrong with me that um, I could learn if I went to medical school because the, you know, the doctors I saw, they couldn't really help. So actually, at first I went to Cornell because I thought maybe I could learn uh, the, a, gen a genetic issue I had, or maybe there was some sort of gene patch that could be invented to help people with these issues. I was looking for the root causes, basically. And, you know, when I went to Cornell, this was in the late 1980s. So this was a, a long time ago. And even at that early stage, I realized that genes were super complicated and we weren't going to be able to be developing these sorts of patches and vaccines, like probably in my lifetime. So I bailed out on that and I went to medical school instead, you know, hoping, okay, well, at least there, maybe I can do some research in sports medicine and get to the underlying root cause. But uh, you don't learn the underlying root causes, right? You just learn to categorize diseases and Medicaid and use labs to test and figure out which category of disease. And so by the time I graduated medical school, I was kind of a disillusioned young doctor because I felt like my own medical practice was a little on the boring side. I didn't like it. I didn't like just like refilling prescriptions for hypertension and well, high cholesterol and, you know, heartburn medications and refilling diabetic prescriptions and not really keeping people out of the hospital with any of it. But I didn't know what to do. And then I myself got sick. And that's what got me into all this. Um, so I uh, was used to getting small little connective tissue injuries that would get better. Ultimately, what happened was uh, this thing did not get better. It was a medical mystery. I was really sick. I, I, um, I couldn't walk. It was horrible. And I had had surgery on my knee and nothing, no answers anywhere. I was tested for every disease under the sun. Medical mystery. And when you're a medical mystery, you have to figure things out for yourself. So you're in this like open-minded state. Um, and my mind was suddenly open to the idea that maybe there was something about nutrition that, uh, you know, my husband has been, had been telling me my diet was terrible because, uh, well, he compared my sugar habit to like an army of ants because <laughs> I really had a sweet tooth. <laughs> And so, like, I was open to the idea that, you know, maybe there was something more to our food than just calories. And I started looking into uh, actually just alternative ways of thinking about health. I started with a book that my husband gave me by this guy, Andrew Weil, who maybe you've heard of. He was a big guru in the 80s and 90s. He kind of was the father of the supplement industry. Um, and he had a book called Spontaneous Healing. And in that book, he mentioned essential fatty acids. So he mentioned basically um, the omega-3 and the omega-6 that I hadn't heard much about these things in medical school. I kind of learned that all fats were the same. They were all bad. It didn't matter. You should avoid them all. And so I was just interested. It, it piqued my little biochemist like, like alarm. I was like, oh, there's something there. And when I started looking into that, 
I, I was hoping actually that learning more about these things and maybe getting more of them or balancing my ratio or whatever he was talking about, uh, which was balancing the ratio of omega-3 and omega-6. I, I was hoping that would help me. But then I quickly learned uh, from reading more about the actual chemistry of these things that no, these things are are really actually very bad for us potentially. Because I, I, as a former biochemistry student, um, you know, I had gone to Cornell uh, and I learned that polyunsaturated fatty acids have this tendency to react with oxygen. And, and that just didn't mean anything to me as I was going through medical school. But then when I started looking into the link to inflammation, I realized, oh, wait a second. These things, when they oxidize, they will cause inflammation. And it doesn't matter three or six. Um, it's really just about the total amount and they are the, they come from vegetable oils and my goodness, I was eating a lot of them because I just ate like a regular busy person. You know, I had a lot of frozen foods. I, I used canned soups. I, uh, ate crackers, uh, chips, you know, I enjoyed like normal food. I went out to eat at restaurants and I, I realized that these, the uh, vegetable oils, you know, which are the same thing as seed oils, right? We call them seed oils now. Um, same thing, soy, uh, sunflower, safflower, canola, corn, cottonseed. You've probably talked about them before. Um, there's actually eight of them. But I realized that they were really like a huge part of my diet and everyone's diet, my patients. And so once I started making the connection to inflammation, I, you know, I, first of all, I changed my diet completely. I also looked at like some, a, a lot of research to figure out what, you know, people really should be eating. That's a whole other story, a whole other book. Uh, but getting back to like why I got down this rabbit hole of the inflammation and the seed oils uh, is because I, I realized that this was something that really should change the way medical thought. It should change medicine. I realized that this was a potential root cause of a lot of the medical mysteries, things medicine still can't explain, even basic stuff like weight gain, obesity. Why is it so persistent? Why are so many people addicted to sugar? So I realized that there was a lot there. And then I just have been investigating that and writing about it in books, websites, and talking about it on um, you know podcasts and stuff ever since. There's a lot there. If I were to write it all down, it would probably be 10 books. So <laughs> it's how much time do you guys have? <laughs> Eric, uh, uh, I think, Eric, you don't have to write the next book. Eric has a T-shirt given to him by his daughter-in-law that says... Friends don't let friends eat seed oils. Is, <laughs> nice. <laughs> that sums up the whole thing that you just said right there. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, uh, I'm, I'm curious, whenever you decided to go on this journey, were you in another practice with any other partners at the time? Yes. So how I was they, in How did they practice. respond to that? Well, yeah. So that was um, interesting in and of itself. I mean, to me, like I was in a small practice. So with a pediatrician and a surgeon and a couple internal medicine doctors, and um, they were kind of sort of open to what I was talking about. Uh and I also was on the island of Kauai, Hawaii at that time. And it was a very small medical community. So I, I gave a couple talks at the local hospital about it. And people were interested, but they totally didn't know what to make of it because it, it was just a huge paradigm shift. And it would literally mean revisiting your entire medical school training to understand the implications of 
of these seed oils being the cause of diseases like heart attacks that we now blame, you know, we were blaming on a cholesterol. We still are, right? So it was just too much of a paradigm shift. It's just too big, really, to for any individual doctor to to kind of grasp on their own. And that's reflected in the fact that it's taken a good 20 years for us to even get to this point where at least kids are making t-shirts about it. Um, it's unfortunate that it's on the form of a t-shirt instead of, you know, a medical symposium, which it really should be. But um, at, at least we're making some progress and it's getting into the conversation and the medical authorities that are creating this whole unhealthy paradigm, the, the ones that are pushing these seed oils in the first place, you know, I'm talking about the people at Tufts and Harvard and the American Heart Association, they're actually noticing, they're actually, um, you know, taking notice of this thing, of this phenomena that people are now waking up to the idea that, oh, the vegetable oils we've been pushing, um, some people say that they're unhealthy, right? Like, I don't know mentally where they're at, if they can accept that idea, but I can I see the pushback because I've been called an influencer myself, you know, in a few articles that have come out. I've been called like, oh, it's you know, this whole thing about seed oils that you, when when um when the media, like you know, the standard media, right? Not podcasters, sure. but like uh, you know, NPR or uh people who consider themselves journalists like the leg the legacy media channels and stuff like that yes okay. those folks they'll just immediately run to the standard authorities right like the the uh the people who are in academic positions at ivy league schools right that that's where they run to that's their go-to so they fail to consider that if these people are the source of the current idea that these oils are healthy, of course they're not just going to turn around and say, "Oh no, they're oh no, they're not. They're you know they're not healthy. We were wrong. They're not going to just do that because you know a few people on the internet and you know they're putting me in that category. Just somebody on the internet <laughs> are as talking about them, but when they talk about me, they never mention that I'm an MD. They never mention that I'm Cornell trained, and they never mention that in my books I cite hundreds of articles of basic science, clinical trials, all sorts of stuff. They just want to dismiss the whole conversation as irrelevant. You know, it's just a meme. It's going to blow over. And that's what I've been fighting against since day one. It's just the big, the big system that we have to turn around to really even, even just to understand the problems that these things really do cause it, it is is a battle because yeah. they cause so many problems that we currently blame on cholesterol or salt or junk food in general in a kind of a lazy way, you know, processed food. But it's understanding how the seed oils affect our body is the key to understanding all of the health conditions and chronic diseases that our country is facing and spending trillions of dollars to artificially, you know, artificially treat. That's really the best way I think of it. They're not really treating these things every year. 
And we're going to stop this particular podcast for a special invitation. This invitation is to join the Gut Check Project Raw Locals community. We all are tired of the bullshit where we turn for great information, who we can trust, and essentially, we want to put a stop to that. There's a lot of bullshit out there, and I know about that because I'm a butt doctor. We're here to build this community to bring trust back to you. There is a lot of shit out there. There's a lot of stuff being censored, and it stops here with our community. And I'm a gas passer, which means I put this guy's patience to sleep. I know that you don't want to be filled up with any hot air. Ultimately, we want you to connect with us. Ask us questions. Let's build a community around trust. No more bullshit. So if you're watching or listening on Rumble, click that red join button in the bottom right over here, and that will take you directly to GCP Raw. We're super excited for you to join. I mean, seriously, it's going to be pretty cool. Well, it's it's wild. You know, you mentioned that you were in Cornell in the late '80s, so probably just like Ken and I, you can remember back when movies like Jaws came out and different things like that. If you go back and watch the movie Jaws and see the beach scenes where there's hundreds of people, uh, you know, playing on the beach, the body habitus, the the body shape, the the everyone out there looks like they're emaciated compared to the way that people look today in America. Back then, by comparison, they were very thin and, and clearly had been in the sun and et cetera. And then what people I think sometimes don't connect is that the prevalence of seed oils since that time, even just that movie was made out in the number and, uh, of foods that it appears in all on its own. It's increased and there's and seed oils aren't the only thing. It's high fructose corn syrup and, and other things like that. But the sugar consumption, the inflammatory fatty acids, just like you're describing, I felt like when I ran across your writings, specifically with the way that you were able to document and back up all of your claims with lots and lots of site works of research, et cetera, I definitely connected with the way that you were presenting your material. It, you spoke to me in a way that I was like, thank goodness that someone else is out here pioneering in this direction. So who, who was the first one to hold on an olive branch say, you know, Dr. Kate, I understand where you're coming from. Let's, let's elevate this conversation. Mm, that's not happened. I mean, you, you, do you mean like somebody from the, uh, like the standard media or medicine medicine? No, well, that's not happened. Well, I guess, I guess, uh, somehow or another, I ran across your name and being searched. And so like, I think you and I had this, or we had this conversation earlier that Ken and I are amazed that anybody even listens to our show. And then we find out that a lot of people do. So how did you go from doing this research to suddenly being discovered? I, I mean, I know that you've been on, I think GMA and a few other episodes and, and different things like that. How did, how did that stuff happen? How did it, how were you received and why did someone decide to uh, to link up with you? Well, I have to tell you, it feels like you know, I'm still waiting by the phone to be discovered because <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like I really have. There's a lot that I, I want to say, like on national media that um, I haven't had the opportunity. But the biggest thing was um, probably we hooked ourselves up. My husband had the idea of magnifying our sphere of influence uh, from basically nothing um, back in 2010 or so to at least less than more than nothing by working with the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, um, because, uh, you know, we knew, I knew that 
getting the seed oils out of their diets would help them. And also adopting a couple of other like key principles of traditional diets, like the bone broths and the fermented foods whenever possible, like yogurts. Um, and, and a couple of other things that I've had, had written about in my first book, um, which is called Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food. I sent that book to Gary Vitti of the Lakers and, you know, he said he would read it. But he also said that, you know, everybody who's written a book <laughs> seems like they need to send it to me. So I didn't have a lot of hopes that I would hear back from them. But guess what? I did. Wow. And uh, yeah. And so they uh, actually Gary Vitti and um, his um, one of his head, his head strength and conditioning coach, Tim DeFrancesco, they uh, were both on the phone and they like quizzed the death out of me for a good hour and a half over my lunch break. So I was late and back to work that day um, about like what's going on. And, you know, this seems real. Why haven't we heard this before? And, you know, what can you do for us? And where should we get started? And I was like thrilled, uh, but they, they brought me in to basically revise their entire um, nutritional philosophy and the way that they fed the team and take control of the way that they fed the team away from just like the random restaurants and the, the random food that they had been getting on the airplanes at the hotels and so on. So, um, so we, we radically, um, eradicated the seed oils from their diets, it, you know, in every place that the Lakers fed them, right? So, uh, of course, we couldn't control what they did at home with their girlfriends when they were out partying. But as far as when they were under the control of what the Lakers, when the Lakers were feeding them, they were feeding them good food. And how did they, the players feel about it? They had no idea. A lot of them had no idea what we were doing. All they said, though, was that this is the best food I've had in the entire NBA. They loved it because when you get these horrible flavorless oils out of the diet and you start using real fats, like butter and just like whole fat eggs, you know, instead of doing just egg white omelets all the time, whole fat dairy, all the good stuff, food tastes better again. So, so they loved it. And there was a ton of publicity, publicity about it. Um, like, so I was officially on the training staff and I didn't really get paid. You know, they paid me like maybe a couple thousand a year for different speaking engagements and stuff, but they, the kind of arrangement was they were going to do whatever they could to get the word out because I told them up front, I, I said, look, this isn't, I'm not going to get rich telling people the truth about nutrition, right? If you want to get rich, you got to sell supplements and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, the, uh, the arrangement was great. Uh, we, uh, will loop you in with our PR team. And whenever, uh, any of the media are interested in diet and nutrition, we will funnel them to you. And so we had tons of publicity. It was all over the LA times many times. It was over the, the um, CBS News was interested. ESPN was interested, just like every sports outlet. Can I clarify that? Tons of publicity for your book or tons of publicity about the concept? About what the Lakers were doing. And, you know, that I was kind of at, at the head of it. Like they sort of mentioned me a little bit. But um, the <laughs> principles of what they were doing was 
uh, that's what got magnified, right? And so the principles that people heard about was the, the grass-fed, the bone broth, the fermented foods. And there was a bit about um, about the oils, but that didn't get magnified as much as I wanted because it was kind of technical and, uh, you know, but anyway, so, but it really, really helped. And that kind of put me on the radar of a lot of podcasts. So that was when I started just getting more invitations uh, to do podcasts. And I've, I don't even know how many I've been on, but like, fortunately, um, I've been on a lot of podcasts and had the opportunity to kind of spread the knowledge and share the knowledge. And I don't know if you guys realize this, but people like Mark Sisson and the folks who founded Whole30, Whole30, they actually reached out to me to say, hey, thanks for telling me about the seed oils. We didn't, you know, we had no idea, but we've, we've made, we've built that in to our, like what our recommendations and what we do and primal kitchens is a huge company now bought out by craft um and their entire like angle is no seed oils they use avocado and oil instead do you, mostly do you find that some of those trusted brands at times once they do get purchased by a big food conglomerate will kind of deviate i mean i've got a couple of brands in my own mind that i've seen once they've been purchased they they tend to so somebody makes a, a, a boardroom decision. We're going to either save money here or we're just simply just going to change the, the makeup of this. There's a particular bread maker that once they were at great bread and, and now suddenly I see canola oil beginning to pop up in various. But you have to really read the label. Yeah, you have to read, you get high yes. high. There's nothing else changed on the packaging. I know for a fact that happens um, because I've spoken to a industry insider whose job was to do exactly that. Uh, He had a word for it. I forget what it was. It was something like dilution or something. So you would start with a, you would build the brand based on something that actually tasted good. And he said the strategy was once you get people used to buying your brand, then you just kind of pull out the quality ingredients and substitute more flour, more textured vegetable protein, you know, cheaper oils, of course. Um, you know, instead of butter and dairy fat or cocoa butter, you start using more of the vegetable oils. Like that was, that was a, that's a, that is a standard practice. But when it comes to primal kitchens, I have to say, I doubt that's going to happen because their entire, um, angle or whatever model, um, hook is no seed oils. And I think as long as Mark Sisson is still alive, He's still involved somewhat in the company, even though it's sold to craft. Um, I think it's going to sustain that principle. Yeah, Mark's a good guy. We've we've met him before. He's uh, I, I think he's definitely dedicated to the altruistic and the healthy uh, avenue there that Primal has. They've got great mayonnaise for sure. Um, and uh, see, they and they and Chosen both have made a name on having the avocado oil based uh, mayonnaise, which I think is delicious. So. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit with you. Great. There's somebody on the internet, um, Dr. Lane Norton, bio lane. He goes on Instagram and you know, his big thing is, is that whenever any, there's a health influencer discussing something, he sort of defends the opposite side by always saying, where's the large randomized placebo control trial. And obviously I've done clinical research myself. I've been paid to do it. I've funded my own research and it is, you know, exorbitantly expensive. And what are you going to do with that data? And I bring all of this up because as you have data to show that these PUFAs react 
with um, oxygen and form free radical oxygen. And we know that that creates inflammation. As a gastroenterologist, I know that on a local level that creates local inflammation on the villi of the intestines. And we do also know that when you look at a graph, there was a study that was published in 2019 on children and adolescents. And the graph right around the late 70s, you see this trend of obesity kick up. And then it just keeps rising and rising and rising. And then you see this trend of depression, ADHD as well, and anxiety. And that is right when a lot of these things started to be implemented, the high fructose corn syrup, the processed seed oils. Eric and I have done a couple shows covering these kind of things um, where you see that it's all legislation driven. It's all motivated by lobbyists that are able to get this. And then, of course, these crops are changed. And now we have this abundance of crops. What do we do with it? Oh, great. So now you have big food, big agra, and now you got big pharma kind of controlling all this stuff. And so we have gotten sicker fatter there's more autoimmune disease than we ever had and this is the first generation dying at a younger age than the previous one the devil's advocate is where's the large randomized placebo controlled trial and i'm like look at all this evidence it's not working do we really need to do a large 10-year study to see if seed oils are doing anything it's not working and my well i guess i i just play devil's advocate with myself but right i think the devil's <laughs> gonna fire you as his advocate because you are doing a very good job of taking his side <laughs> my client's <laughs> innocent except he did kill that man <laughs> that's why i dropped out of law school Suck it. Um, well i i so first of all let me respond to that and i mean i know what you're getting at right like this yes that's a good question yeah. Where it's it's not it's not a stupid question. It's a really good question. Um, you know where where's the evidence, right? Because this is how nutrition science works right now. Um, that you know it's it's uh, this is at least that's how we are trying to make it work. It's not working very well, uh, and you can see this because you when the media report on these kinds of clinical trials, one minute we'll see the opposite conclusion as we will the next minute, right? So these kinds of clinical trials don't seem to be very reliable in and of themselves because they keep changing, right? It's the clinical trials that it's based on these clinical trials and these kinds of consensus panels coming together and reviewing the data that of the clinical trials uh, that we have had people in the first place say, oh, you got to avoid cholesterol in the diet. Well, that was repealed, right? So that we no longer have to do that. Um, and, and then they said, okay, well, no, you got to avoid saturated fat in the diet. And they looked at that more closely and, and that has been, a, you know, there's no evidence for that either. But um, so, so I think that when people say, okay, well, where is the evidence? You can't be just lazy and, and say, where's the one big study that I want to look at um, that's happened recently? I can tell you there have been several big studies to look at that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago when this question was first and like brought up, but they were done by people who had an intellectual conflict of interest. They were the people, they were done by the people who really believed that saturated fat raised cholesterol and caused heart attacks. So they designed several randomized controlled trials. Well, one was randomized and controlled and one was not randomized, uh, but um, but it was still a very large, valuable study. 
And maybe you've talked about these before, but one of them um, was called the Minnesota Coronary Experiment. Um, another one is the LAVA study, and another one is the Sydney Heart Study. So the best one ever um, is the Minnesota Coronary Experiment. Have you talked about this one before? We have not. So this was a very, very important study for anybody who's, you know, that listening to the devil, <laughs> you know, or wants to, you know, hear the other side um, to know about, because this was the best study that you could possibly do on humans. Um, it was a large study. It had, you know, many thousands of patients. It was a long-term study. It was um, the average uh, length duration of participation in the study was many years. And it was controlled in that they uh, they had a control group. It wasn't just testing, you know, vegetable oils or just testing cholesterol. It was identical diets, except for one had all of the natural fats pulled out and replaced with, uh, I think it was corn oil or soy oil. I can't remember which one it was. Um, they're, they're, I mean, those two are chemically identical. They're both seed oils and high in polyunsaturates. And that was the key thing was the difference in polyunsaturated fat versus saturated fat. They had the same amount of fat and everything else in every other way. They were as identical as you could possibly get. And the participants didn't know which diet they were getting and neither did the study designer. So it was a perfect kind of study, double blind, placebo controlled, the only one of its kind ever done, the largest and the best. And what it showed was the opposite of what they expected. Um, and the, the study um, designer was, or the lead study was, I believe his name was Ivan Franz. And uh, you know, he was a cardiologist, very well respected, um, but I believe he was at the Cleveland Clinic. And then another co-author um, on the study was notorious Ansel Keys. And I, I suppose you probably have talked about Ansel Keys before. He's the guy that originally came up with this idea that saturated fat was the cause of heart attacks. Mm -hmm. Have you talked about him before? In loosely, not directly by his name, but we do. We have talked about the topic. Yeah. So Ansel Keys is the father of um, this disaster that we're living in now because he's the original originator of the idea that cholesterol was uh, the cause of heart attacks and saturated fat since it raises cholesterol well saturated fat should be avoided and he, it was Ansel Keys who said you know vegetable oils are going to be a better alternative because they lower cholesterol and so you can prevent heart attacks that way and he said that so many times people just started believing it um, he never really had any great data. All of his studies that have been reviewed re have, have fallen apart. So when people ask, where is the evidence? I would say, where is the evidence for the other side? Because when you look at that, when you scrutinize Ansel Key's original data for this original theory, it falls apart. Everyone who has done that and many, you know, PhDs have done this and published, um, and it falls apart. But back to the Minnesota coronary experiment that Ansel Keys was involved in. Um, when the data was done, it was not what they expected. Like they, they just reviewed the preliminary data and uh, in something like 1979. And it was so surprising. They didn't know what to make of it. 
they said. This is what happened. Um, this came out in an interview by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, he he interviewed uh, the son of this Dr. Ivan France, who was in charge of this study. Because um, Dr. Ivan France uh, passed away, you know, many years ago, and um, but the whole issue was brought back to light because the study was never properly published, and it wasn't published, you know, at all until um, many years later by the by the group that did it. But they didn't report on their endpoints; they didn't report it properly. And this was brought to light by uh, somebody at the National Institute of Health named Chris Ramsden, a medical doctor and a public health expert. And he he was going through just like randomized controlled studies. He was looking for this perfect study on how can we assess what's going on here with our health change? Because he was well aware that we we're eating more vegetable oil than ever. Um, and he was just looking through, well, what has already been done on this? He was just doing the due diligence to do a, um, a, a to publish a paper on that. And, and he kind of got derailed from that paper because what he found was something much more interesting was that it looked like there was a perfect study done, this Minnesota coronary experiment, but it was never properly published. So, so he just did, he was like a, a true medical detective because he had to go back into literally climbing into the basement of the son of this Dr. Ivan France who had died by the time um, Dr. Ramsden was involved in looking at the real data decades later. Um, Dr. Ivan France, to his credit, didn't destroy the data. So they had their original data. They just never reported on it. They had boxes and boxes of it, and it was autopsy slides taken from people's arteries to take a look at, you know, did they have coronary artery disease when they died? It was amazing piles of evidence in this wow. basement that he dusted off, and he and his team carefully reviewed them. And when what they found was was so important that had it been published in the 1970s when it was done, we would be living in a seed oil-free world right now. Um, we would not be dealing with coronary artery disease or cancer because what it showed was that the, the people in the seed oil group versus the people in the saturated fat group, they did indeed have lower cholesterol and they died more of cancer. And it looked like there was a trend towards dying more even of cardiovascular disease, the very disease that lowering cholesterol is supposed to prevent. Um, and so like that came out, that paper was published in the British Medical Journal in um, I think like April of 2016. And it was, the, the title says something like Minnesota, a reappraisal of the Minnesota coronary experiment by Christopher Ramsden, MD, PhD and a whole team of people at the NIH. Mm -hmm. This is not a crackpot team, or maybe it is a crackpot. Is crackpot good or bad? <laughs> I guess it depends on the context. <laughs> I don't know. I if you like crackpots. <laughs> yeah. This was a no really top-notch team. bad. I don't know about a crackpot. <laughs> <laughs> you, you wouldn't want to be, like, the people... Uh, the devil's advocate would not be want to be in the room with these people because they are on their A game. This is an A team. Sure. And and they clearly made it clear that uh, the it's bad. The vegetable oils in this randomized control trial came out looking 
dangerous. They're actually kind of like the worst possible outcome, which is increasing the risk of death. So that's what you get when you do a randomized controlled clinical trial, the best one ever done. So when these people try to say that, you know, where's the, the clinical trials, I will tell you, we have done it and go look you know, do your due diligence and read it. And then come back to me with your demurs and your questions, because then we can have a real conversation about some of the finer points and the details, which will be interesting conversation. And it's an important conversation to have. But first you have to have your facts straight. These studies were done. And here's another thing about this study that is, you know, I think it's very important to understand. When this study was published, what was the reaction by the medical uh you know, the authorities, our authorities, the people who write the guidelines. I can only imagine it was rejection. <laughs> exactly so. They, it was a really smart kind of a rejection. It was like, oh yeah, that's an interesting, literally, I think it was these words, Walter Willett of the American Heart, uh, yeah, Walter Willett of Harvard at the time and the American Heart Association said, this paper, these findings, it's a, nothing but an interesting historical footnote that has no relevance to today. Oh, wow. That is an outrageous lie. And he needs to be held to task. Somebody in, you know, somebody somewhere, like 60 minutes, they need to go and say, Walter Willett, how could you possibly say this? Because we are living on these seed oils because this article was suppressed what and do you, you think call some, it irrelevant. What do you think someone like Walter Willett or the original uh, owners of the study that delayed its publication, et cetera, who, who and how and why were they protecting by not Willett for rejecting the information, the original owners of the study for not publishing and, and making public the endpoints? What, what entity is getting to them to prevent them? Because as you said, you felt like that they were searching for one answer and got the opposite. And a true scientist just reports the data without bias. Who who are they helping here? Themselves. These people are in bed with the vegetable oil industry. The, the kind of people that um, I'm talking about are, you know, deans at Ivy League nutrition or medical institutes. And uh, so one of them, you know, I, you know, I can name names. Um, one of them is Dariush Mozafarian. He uh, was, has been, um, it, well, he is at Harvard and he has been and may still be the dean of one of their nutrition schools, the Harvard T. Chan Nutrition School, School of Nutrition, right? So he's a huge authority and he has done thousands of, of uh, he's published thousands of papers thousands the number itself should be a little bit like how can you do that are you even reading these papers but um the more concerning thing is that his papers are uh done in conjunction with an entity called force um i forget exactly what it stands for but it is funded by unilever and unilever oh. is one of the biggest growers of seed oils yeah. So this person who who is just one of many of the same kind of authority status that the media will turn to, um, that have built their own little careers, well, their own huge careers, um, based on 
you know, getting in bed with big oil and <laughs> big seed oil and just towing the party line in terms of the standard nutrition advice that people that the they uh, the Harvards, the American Heart Association have been pushing on us for decades, right? They're not going to change their tune. Their entire uh, like mission is built around the status quo. So, you know, they're not going to just change their tune, but they are the problem. It's, it's not like big oil has, has to kind of keep paying them. They are in bed with big oil. They, they love big oil. It's made their careers, right? This is at some point, you know, people don't need to be paid millions and millions, although maybe they are. But if your entire, you know, if you live to be on the media and be this influencer and be who, uh, well, Bill Maher calls, uh, you know, be who the media look to for answers. If that's what you do, then you you don't need to be paid all that much. You just need to be continually in that position of authority. You need to be, you know, propped up like that. But, you know, if if you ever disappear, you're entirely replaceable. All they will do is just get another another guy who looks exactly like Darius Mosafari and say, oh, look, the same. Walter Willett has the same look. These are tall, healthy looking uh, white men it, with the, the kind of like uh, peppered gray hair, the, the uh, voice of authority, the confidence, kind of a little suave that you can see them in a Viagra commercial. They're, this is who they pick, right? This is the type. That's the type. So he is, he's just a type and he's replaceable. And they've replaced him over the years. Ansel Keys was exactly that kind of stereotypical look too. So I think that people don't realize, and you're you're sounding like an investigative journalist the way that you're describing and walking this through. Have you discussed these in your books, like in detail? This um, my my next book discusses this in the most detail. Um, my my earlier books kind of touch on it quite a bit, and just um, like the danger, the danger of believing in the status quo. And my first mm -hmm. book, Deep Nutrition, just talks about the fact that it's such an effective disease producing idea this idea that cholesterol is unhealthy is such an effective disease producing idea why because it takes us away from all of our traditional beliefs about nutrition and health because they center around a holistic approach they center around raising animals that was the human nutritional strategy for our entire recent 10, 20,000, 40,000 years of existence. And before that, it was catching and hunting animals. So when you take away cholesterol, you completely disconnect us from our culinary roots and our traditions. And, and why is that so bad? When you can disconnect us from tre treasured recipes that have been passed down for generations, memories are made of these meals. You open the door for the processed food industry to fill our kitchens, our cupboards, and flood our tables with their junk. And that is what happened. And it, it started the minute Ansel Keys gained notoriety um, in 1961 when he was on the cover of Time magazine 
which uh, in, in the 1960s, Time Magazine was the, being on the cover of Time Magazine was like the ultimate social proof. And not only was he on the cover, he was man of the year, right? Wow. In 1961. And this was before any real data had come in from any of his studies, but he was presented and presenting his own data as if it was already conclusive that you know their data showed that in countries that ate more animal fats that that people would have more heart attacks that was an absolute fiction and he's never been called on this and that's what my next book does well that's going to be really exciting because what you're discussing eric and i did an episode where there was an investigative journalist that got hold of some emails with the american dietetic association and we went through this so they they published this incredible article describing in detail how the American Dietetic Association is completely in bed with big food and these email chains that they were able to get just explicitly details the amount of money that they're getting from Kraft, from Nestle, from so-and-so. And so they need to recommend that Kraft cheese slices be part of a, you know, a, a child meal in all schools and all these other things. And it was so blatant that this goes on. We had, when I was a fellow and I was doing research, we were doing research on a drug for fatty liver disease and the results did not come back statistically conclusive. And my, uh, I guess my attending physician who is a liver specialist in a very thick Russian accent said, uh, you know, the, I said, well, unfortunately it's not, it's not statistically conclusive. He said, I do not care about that. Find me a statistician that is willing to say it is, you know, conclusive. And then he followed that up with, do you have any idea that this one study is funding two departments right now? And you're like, oh, okay. So this is the world, you know, we're living. So it all comes down to money and all comes down to funding. And what you're talking about is super exciting because there's a stepwise path to what we can say, you're not a conspiracist. You're somebody who has done your homework and has the actual path on how this happened. That's what's super cool. Yes. Like, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's so far back in history that this happened, that it's almost like a miracle, but um, I only know about it because a, a, a real investigative journalist named Nina Teicholz first wrote about it in the wall Street in the wall street journal, uh, back in 20, I don't know, 12 or 13 or something like this. And what she found was this tiny little clue, but it was a huge, very important clue. And it was the fact that uh, the uh, American Heart Association had received $1.75 million uh, gift back in 1948. So that was worth yeah. about 30 million in today's dollars. Uh, it was just a gift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And, and who was Proct who funded them? It was Procter and Gamble. And what did they sell? Uh, Cottonseed oil and soy oil. Wow. Which they uh, and they also sell you know soap and stuff like this. But you know why would they fund um, a medical organization? Well, gee, I wonder. Um, so so uh, <laughs> yeah. Didn't didn't I just because uh, you're you're onto something right here? Didn't uh, in one of your articles specifically about the AHA, you talked about how. It used to be a solely member-funded organization, the American Heart Association. And then when they opened it up to uh, outside sponsorship, it basically opened up the floodgates for exactly what you're describing. 
Yes, that's what that was the problem. And um, the members at the time, um, you know, in the mid to late 40s were were bitterly debating this because there was a small group that really wanted to have it be more about uh, truth finding. And they were very concerned that if they were to accept outside money from industries, that they would start to they would start to. Uh, sing the tune that would benefit the industry. And it's exactly what happened. I mean, those folks were, were they predicted the future. And, you know, these things are minutes that the American Heart Association still has. And if anybody listening is a journalist, they can go and do the same research that Nina Teicholz did. Nina Teicholz herself might want to do this one day. Um, and, and just like go through the back and the forth of uh, the pros and the cons and the, you know, what, what they predicted would happen and how it now has happened. It, it totally did. In any of these institutions, do you uh, even uh, in the uh, the educational realm? Do you feel like that there are ever any students that, while they're working on uh, Willett's, uh, you know, one thousand or whomever it was you said had a thousand articles, that they ever look at stuff and say, uh, "This isn't really adding up," and that they their 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 term there is short lived. I mean, I wouldn't know, but I would imagine that's exactly how it goes because we uh, there's examples of things that have happened before when if you're in academia and you're not in lockstep with a party line you you get tossed out so one example that i've written about in one of my books called food rules was um a doctor named last name was hollick who was talking about uh, vitamin d getting it from the sun he was a dermatologist now apparently if you're a dermatologist the sun is the enemy and and recommending sensible sun exposure, which is what he recommended. He didn't recommend, you know, never use suntan lotion. Um, he just recommended sensible sun exposure to get natural vitamin D because there was, he had pointed out that his research showed there were quite a number of people who were deficient and that taking a supplement may not be exactly the same as getting it from the sun. It was just a, you know, a, a logical thought, right? Um, it hadn't been like double blind placebo controlled trial studies to show that, oh, taking a supplement is just as good, but it was just kind of common sense. And for his common sense, he was fired for making this uh, recommendation. This was at Harvard. And so I've heard other things about people who, you know, have done work with researchers. And I hear more often about people from Ivy League institutes, you know, they're in this position of authority. They've worked really hard to craft their careers. Think about it from their position, right? They, 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 um, they, they're not necessarily the best scientists, but they, I mean, I'm just going to make a blanket sweeping statement here. I'm sure there are excellent scientists at Harvard, but I think when it comes to nutrition, um, anything that has to do with preventative medicine, somehow or other things get really twisted and corrupted and ugly. And uh, if you want to be a, you know, somebody who's an expert in nutrition or preventative medicine at an Ivy League Institute, you have to, you have to um, have some sort of uh, moral uh, conflict or moral issue because you will, in order to keep the the status quo, which you have to do, um, you're going to have to make intellectual compromises that go against science. And this happens time and time 
again. And, you know, you've, you've talked about this example in sugar. Where were those people? Harvard, right? So it's the more the Institute is respected, I think the more that you have to kind of see some of these experts, not all of them, but some of them as politicians and, you know, kind of willing to do what it takes to claw their way to the top. And you express that, you know, yourself with, with your, you know, your own um, working, um, Ken, when you were telling, uh, you know, your story about how the the lead investigator was like, just make, find somebody who will, you know, get me the results I want. And that that's just the way it is in the higher your, the more power you have, what is that absolute power corrupts and more of it corrupts you more absolutely, mm. something like that. That's true. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> you know, there's a couple things. Number one, did you see the recent thing where a blogger discovered that six clinical studies put out by a Harvard-affiliated cancer institute were completely wrong and falsified, and so now they have to retract six journal articles, and it was a blogger, an investigative journalist that kind of figured this out and showed it, that, and this just happened just a few weeks ago. Well, that's, you know, that's fascinating. I hadn't seen that, but, you know, I'm not surprised and, you know, thank goodness for, for social media, right? Because, you know, it has a lot of problems, but at least one thing it does is gives people like me and like you some voice when otherwise we wouldn't have any at all. And as we talk about publications, then there's the complete flip side where um, he's, He's an author, but he he was he's made the podcast rounds at James Lindsay. Oh, James Lindsay. Yeah. yeah, James Lindsay, where he proved that if you're writing what the academia deems as the golden child at the moment. So he wrote a lot of things in sort of this woke narrative in a study, and it was about dogs in dog parks and how they behave. And he got multiple studies published that were completely fabricated. Then he came out and said, I made it all up. This is how BS this is. You guys publish this shit and it's fake and you just did it because it was in line with your current viewpoint. Absolutely. I mean, like this is, it's just about being popular at some point rather that, you know, people disconnect from any kind of element of science or reality or morality. And they just want to pursue like the, the authority and the popularity and basically become politicians. And so it, it's almost like the more you have this authority status in the field of nutrition and preventative medicine, the less likely you are to have any kind of ethic whatsoever. I, I you know, I, I really, um, I have such, uh, I detest these people. I was just going to say it like the, the people who are elevated to these positions of authority and they have the opportunity to turn it all around to fix healthcare in America, because that is how powerfully, um, getting seed oils and a few other things out of your diet will improve your health. They have the opportunity to set the record straight on saturated fat and cholesterol more than anyone else on the planet. And they are not taking it. They are not leaders. They are the opposite of leaders. You know, they're just doing evil. So you're familiar with Dr. Asim Malhotra? He's a good guy. <laughs> That's an example 
Um, we had a podcast. Um, I don't remember who it was. We did this great series of podcasts where we had a lot of people, a lot of forward thinking doctors during the COVID era that all took arrows. And um, maybe it was Dr. Goodyear or somebody that said, you know, the, the person that steps up after the first person and takes that arrow because you know what's going to happen. And, you know, Asim did that with the whole cholesterol medicine said, hey, guys, I'm just looking at this. And then when you hear his story, he was, you know, fired. You know, they tried to take his license away and all the stuff for saying that. So when you say I detest these people, I do have this idea that some of them are going I got two kids. I'm making this amount of money. Every time I go speak, they give me an exorbitant amount of money over here. If I don't tow the party line and the way you said it, nailed it. They are politicians in the medical space. That's what yes. they're doing. They're trying to climb this political ladder. Right. Yeah, at all costs, right? I mean, I think the uh, the question of how much are you willing to justify for your children was asked and answered by that popular show Breaking Bad, right? He Everything he did in that show, he justified by, I was just looking out for my kids until the very yeah. end when he admitted, ah, actually, I kind of was having fun. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, spoiler alert. <laughs> hey, I, I want to take it to uh, to some of the topics that you've covered on, uh, on your website. And again, if if uh, y'all haven't visited Dr. Kate, that's D-R-C-A-T-E dot com, do yourself a favor and, and read through any of her her entries. They're well-researched and certainly well-documented where she gets the information. But I just want to say this really oh, quick. Yeah. You should know that he has literally to other podcast guests referenced you no less than six times. Yeah. And, it's, <laughs> and I'm just like, what is the deal with you and this Kate person? Well, now we have it. Now I know why you're, Awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Wait, no, your, your research is extensive. Uh, but the way that you break down on your website, uh, the, the myth and the understanding around cholesterol is so far and away from the way that they do it in med school, nursing school, and for, for dietitians as they learn it. Can you kind of just give a brief takeaway so that maybe some people will be inspired to learn really what you have here in this knowledge for the cholesterol understanding? So we have this idea, doctors learn, that cholesterol uh, travels in our arteries and LDL cholesterol is a cholesterol, is a, it's a particle that we call bad cholesterol that is rich in cholesterol as well as other fats, right? Um, all the cholesterol and fats in our bloodstream well, most of them travel in these um, amphibious vehicles called lipoproteins. HDL is one, LDL is another, right? HDL is a supposed good, LDL is a supposed bad. Um, and the thinking currently is, uh, which is wrong, is that LDL particles are somehow pro-inflammatory. And um, if they somehow become small in size, then they, they enter the arterial wall where they will oxidize and build up as plaque, right? So basically cholesterol carrying particles, LDL, just automatically bad. And so therefore you need to have very little in your bloodstream and you have to take statins or do whatever it takes to get your numbers down very low. Uh, the reality is that, and this is based on, this is based on research. This isn't just like my idea, but it aligns with what I would have guessed because of chemistry. 
So the chemistry predicts that the polyunsaturated fatty acids that are in those LDL particles will oxidize, and then they will oxidize the entire particle. And that particle will malfunction, and it will end up you know, floating around aimlessly in your bloodstream and um, then end up depositing on the arterial wall. And then you get inflammation there and plaques. So the, the root cause is the polyunsaturated fatty acids in LDL particles or in HDL particles in any uh, lipoprotein. The root cause is the oxidation of these fatty acids that are floating around in our bloodstream that just disrupt the function of this whole lipoprotein purpose, which is to travel around in our bloodstream and deliver cholesterol and deliver fatty acids and deliver fat soluble nutrients to all the cells in need. But when it's oxidized, it can't do that. And it just ends up causing problems. It's basically burnt, goopy, fatty garbage. And that is what arteriosclerotic plaque is. It's goopy, fatty garbage that is in the arterial wall and damaging the arterial wall. Now, interestingly, it's I, I like to just kind of go uh, touch on the damage to the arterial wall. When people die of a heart attack, it's not generally that there's been fat building up in their arteries. It's that the arteries have bled, right? And there's a clot in the artery. And the, the little arteries uh, uh, in our heart are big enough that they have blood vessels supplying them and their muscles. And the damage just makes those blood vessels break and leak. And that's where you get clots. That's what heart attacks are. That's why we treat heart attacks with clot-busting drugs, not fat-dissolving drugs like Drano, right? So our whole discussion around what causes heart attacks is flawed by this thought that cholesterol is somehow inherently bad and fat is somehow inherently bad and this LDL particles are just bad players. That's what the lipidologists like to call them. And we shouldn't have any in our bloodstream, which goes against chemistry and it just goes against nature. You know, at the beginning, it, we talked about how my philosophy is that nature is the original scientist. Nature knows what nature is doing, what she's doing for a reason. And our science is just trying to figure out what she's up to and how it all works. And we've done a lousy job when it comes to heart attacks and strokes and preventative medicine, because we just went along with this Ansel Keys idea that it's cholesterol and saturated fat, or maybe the both of them. It was like a fuzzy idea in the beginning, didn't really have it all laid out, didn't have his ideas straight even. He just started scaring people about saturated fat and cholesterol. And because he was in bed with very influential people, the, um, the American Heart Association and at, at Harvard, and he was constantly on the media, we went along with it. And it just doesn't make sense on any kind of like logical chemical level, thought process level. Why would nature burden us with these particles that are out to kill us? It just like doesn't make any sense on a common sense level. So, but yet doctors don't question it because we just hear it so many times. And I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, we have such a crisis in our uh, healthcare today because, not because we don't have enough healthcare, but because doctors have been converted into 
agents of disease. We have a fundamental problem with our preventative medicine advice. We recommend a diet that makes people unhealthy, a cholesterol-lowering diet full of seed oils. And when you have that going on for years after years after generations, your population will become increasingly unhealthy. And now we've exported that to the entire world. So this is a huge problem and it's all, that's a bad news. The good news, there is good news in this. It's all just based on the belief, the belief that cholesterol is bad. If we let go of that fear, we can turn our health around. We can turn the entire country's health and finances around and we can live in a better world. So that's what I'm working for. And thank you for having me on. <laughs> Is that what motivates you? Because you're working very hard and you were saying, I'm still waiting for the phone to ring, but what is your motivation right now? <laughs> yes, I mean, that is why I went into medicine because I I wanted to get at that root cause and I feel like I have. And now the bigger job, getting at the root cause actually turned out to be a lot easier than convincing the world, the medical system, that this might be the root cause and it's something to at least consider having a conversation about right now they're shutting the conversation down the fascinating thing is that it's not doesn't take a lot of rocket science to try and change as we discuss it our children live it our children look at labels when when necessary because most of the time just eat whole food <laughs> just make your own food that's pretty much how we have sort of raised our kids. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's essential. If you, I mean, if you can't learn to cook at home, you're, you're beholden to whatever the store, however that, however good that store is, or however good that restaurant is trying to trust that they will put the same kind of care that you should be able to do for yourself is really a long-term losing end of a gamble, I think. Exactly. You know, it's a kind of dependency. And, um, you know, the more that we can free ourselves from dependence on the processed food industry or free ourselves from dependency on different drugs, you know, for I'm thinking of like, you know, drugs for performance enhancing drugs for uh, for concentration at work, which a lot of people are using. Um, the more we can free ourselves from these dependencies, um, and the better our lives will be. And yes, it requires some habit change. You do have to pay attention to what you're eating more and maybe learn some kitchen skills. But guess what? Your food will taste better and you're going to feel better and your family will be healthier. They you know, may I, thank I, you. I, I always often hear the the statement of habit change and I'll, I would have to change to do this. I would have to change to do that. But uh, more often than not, you're technically already doing a really in my opinion, an odd habit change when someone writes you a prescription for something that's a medication. And now you've gotten in the habit of doing once, two, three, four times a day. That in and of itself is a habit, which is odd. You're taking this odd shaped thing to alleviate something. And actually Ken brought up on our, uh, after we had met Asim, you went through his research and talked about his discovery on how even statins, the best they could show in a reduction of coronary uh, vessel incidents and heart attacks was less than 1% were they even able to even try to correlate or attri uh, attribute to 
yeah. to statin therapy. And in most cases, I don't remember what the delineation was, but in most cases there was actually no improvement from utilizing statins to lack of stroke or, or myocardial inf infarction. And no one, just like you said, no one knows, no one's aware, no one reads. They just hear it and they're like, well, that's the way it must be. I want to, I want to give you an example. I just thought about this just now. When you talk about changing habits, mm -hmm. I just saw a patient that came to the clinic on Monday and uh, talking to them, it's a new patient. And he said that he was, uh, you know, just kind of getting down. And so they put him on a whatever SSRI. And unfortunately, that triggered significant anxiety in him. And so they put him on another thing for anxiety. And then the combination of the two created tremendous constipation. And so they put him on a constipation drug. And he's, you know, he's seeing me because he's like having like legit stuff, you know rectal bleeding and pencil thin schools and it all started because he's really worried he has colon cancer yeah and now he's got this habit of chasing side effects from these other medications and that was okay for some reason like that was okay to do and i'm like whoa so we, we have totally yes i mean you're you, you hit the nail on the head we have normalized taking prescriptions and prescription drug dependency we have normalized that as a habit and think about all the time that you spend chasing down refills for your prescriptions, you know, swallowing your pills, standing in line at the pharmacy to get them. All that time, you could be investing in looking up, you know, recipes for what to do with that uh, frozen chicken you've got in your freezer or, you know, how to, you know, make, uh, I don't know, cheese sauce for broccoli, which makes it totally delicious. Yeah. You know, just like thinking about reinvesting your time in a way that makes you independent of the medical system. And so let's, yeah. So just as a gastroenterologist, we're supposed to be schooled in nutrition. We got squat for nutrition. I go to the hospital, him and I have talked about this. You go to the cardiac ward post MI and you see what they're being fed and it's pancakes and syrup and crackers and crackers and smuckers jelly and graham crackers and things like that. And then um, the, the, with my call, I do have colleagues that actually will fire patients if they are taking anything other than the prescribed medications, meaning no supplements. They will actually fire a patient. And of course, we're in the supplement industry in the sense of based on science, we work with polyphenols. You're very familiar with those molecules. And that's the stuff that we know because that's Mother Nature's way of giving you what your body needs. And it just shows just how indoctrinated and how mainstream that has become where it's it's a drug or it's not good for you is what I'm getting at. Yes. And, and it's reinforced with cash. Are you familiar with the pay for performance? Rahitis measures. I have gotten some nasty letters from <laughs> the insurance companies saying that I overutilize things like <laughs> x-rays or diagnostic things or Are whatever. Are you trying and to find out what's wrong with the patient? Exactly. <laughs> it's nuts. <laughs> My favorite is somebody comes in and they've got severe left lower quadrant pain and they've got a mild fever and it hurts like right there. And I'm like, okay, well, we need to document that this is diverticulitis because this is probably your third episode and this would warrant a surgery. And then it gets denied by the insurance. And I have to do a peer-to-peer -peer with somebody, take time out of my day, do a peer-to-peer, -peer, talk to somebody who's a psychiatrist hired by them to approve or deny. I'm like, dude, it's diverticulitis. I need to see if it's an abscess or even, you know, a micro perf. And he's like, oh, okay, we'll approve it this time. 
Like, come on. So uh, let me tell you about an experience I had when I was um, interviewing for a position with a large um, healthcare organization in the Pacific Northwest, where uh, I was sitting down with one of their medical directors, and he was just so happy to be able to offer me like more money than than he knew he was able to offer me more than other organizations because they had partnered he was bragging about this they had partnered with big pharma and they had created a pay for performance structure where doctors who got their patients ldl cholesterol levels under 100 would be financially rewarded no and way. doctors who didn't would be financially penalized. And if they didn't play the game after a certain amount of time, they would be fired. Wow. So, so this, I bring this up because if your doctor has been pushing you, or if you're running into colleagues who, who do what you mentioned, they will fire patients who don't comply. It's their the money on the line for them. And it can be their job on the line for them. Wow, and this is know. how our system has been so twisted to the benefit of the drug companies and to make us just forget about using food as nutrition because the kind of diet that we recommend is not very satisfying. It's low cholesterol. Cholesterol's satiating. So it's just the entire system is twisted. And uh, like I describe it, you know, when I do consultations with patients, I say, you know, look, um, I, you've read my books and you are, you will from time to time have to engage with the medical system. And you're, I know I empathize with you because you probably feel like you Alice in Wonderland right now, um, you know, with the rug pulled out from under you, having gone down the rabbit hole on the other side of the looking glass, the world is backwards. And the medical system is truly backwards now when it comes to preventative medicine and chronic disease treatment. You know, it's great when it comes to the reactive kind of stuff and surgical interventions and all that sort of technology-based stuff is amazing. But, but when it comes to probably 90 to 95% of what happens, it's dangerous and this is twisted. And that's why, uh, you know, my next book that's going to be released in June is called Dark Calories because medicine has really gone to a dark place. And I think that it's just so important for people to understand it from this perspective. Wow. That's incredible. That really is. Um, so that was, uh, I mean, there's just a whole lot of th doors that it can open going through all of the subject matter that you have on the website. And, and honestly, before you came on today, I've told Ken what I'd like to do. And if you're willing is to, we could find a, a couple of different topics and we could even have just an entire show about some of the articles that you've written about. And plus with dark calories, I would love to have you back so that we could discuss the launch of this book. Um, this is, we'll actually great. read your book next time. Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get all caught up on all of our books. Your your website is just far more convenient. I love the way you honest. said that. I was like, it was like, yes, I ate the cookies. Yeah. <laughs> no, I really just asked because I wanted to know if you were going to quiz me about the details. Yeah, no, no, no I, I at least you know, at least you know that we're honest. So, um, 
Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, but uh, one one thing that uh, I definitely want to follow up with, and I'm and uh, I already had someone write in when we said that you were coming on the show was see what she thinks of your sparkling water now, Eric. And because you'd written the article a long time ago, I guess about uh, is it linalool? Is that correct? That's in yeah. sparkling water, and it's it's a compound that I, I knew nothing about, but doing a whole show on that. I mean, I, I basically, I drink a Waterloo probably for every episode. I just I don't know if I'm addicted to them or what, but uh, it's, it's definitely a craze of people drinking flavored uh, water. And it's just, it always puts you in the reset that even as new products, new opportunities come out, you still need to be mindful what element is natural and what's being substituted for nature that you're putting in there. And what's the cost? What is the cost? Everything that you do, there's, it's an exchange and there's a cost, there's a trade-off. So. Yeah, exactly. It, there, there is. And that, yeah, so it, it all comes down to chemistry, right? Linalool is a chemical and it can affect our brain chemistry and our brain chemistry, you know, makes us fall in love, right? <laughs> so that's how powerful chemistry is. So that's why I just always try to go back to it and um, sort of try to get people somewhat interested in chemistry a little bit. It's kind of a big ask. But um, but yeah, so chemistry has a lot of answers and it has more answers than those clinically designed double-blinded you know, studies that are flawed. And they're flawed in many ways that have to do with not understanding chemistry. So you know, maybe if I come back, we can talk about some of the flaws because there's consistent patterns there. And I think people might be interested in those flaws of like, why isn't it so obvious if these things are so bad? Why doesn't that come up? And in, in, in the studies that have been done. So that would be an interesting thing to talk oh, about. Yeah, that I want to explore how people hide behind the, just the word <laughs> natural flavors and, and yeah, that's what you're <laughs> able to discover on that. I mean, they, it looks so, so peaceful when you read it on a label. Oh, it's just natural flavors. But what the, what the FDA allows to fall under the category of natural flavors isn't so pretty, unfortunately. No, there's a lot of a lot of. Um, wheeling and dealing behind the scenes that that uh, has been going on in the labeling world in the past 10 years around, you know, sweeteners. So yeah, that would be something interesting to oh, talk about. We got about. a lot of episodes we can cover with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I've got two quick questions for you and then we'll go ahead and wrap up. Number one, you said that you were a college athlete. What did you do? I ran because I'm so uncoordinated. Uh, yeah, it couldn't play <laughs> Any other sort of team sport, um, I could just go put one leg in from the other, and I could do it pretty fast because I I have uh, <laughs> I, could, I have big lungs, right? I like I have always hated the way I look in the mirror. You can only see me from the shoulders up, right? You can't see that I have like this big chest, and it's like oh, for women, you're not supposed to have big ribs. But when you're trying to run, uh, they give you a lot of oxygen. So it was a great advantage I had <laughs> on cross country and track. So I did long nice. distance. That's yeah, awesome. and it was. I got a scholarship. I actually got invited to the Olympic trials. Whoa! Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. You didn't know. just put one leg in front of the other. You <laughs> did it very well. Wow, that's <laughs> awesome. That's great. Well, Dr. Kate, thank you so much for coming on. How can or how would you like everyone to reach out to you? What are the different means? Please visit my website, drkate.com, D-R-C-A-T-E.com. And I have a bunch of free goodies that um, that kind of help you get started on a healthy diet journey. And when you do sign up for those, you sign up for my once a month newsletter so you can stay up to date on the articles that I write because that's really, that's the best way to get the articles when I write new ones on my website. 
Awesome. Excellent. Well, Dr. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on Gut Check Project. We appreciate the time. I cannot wait to have you back again. And uh, this was uh, this was awesome. And, we'll, and obviously, we'll continue to read uh, the website and keep up with you. And as Ken said, we are actually going to read a book this year. So <laughs> it's on it. Audible if you want to listen. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. All right, well, everyone, you, we will Ken. see you all next time. And uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Kate. Thank you, Ken and Eric. It was a pleasure. You bet. Same here. That's a wrap for this episode of the Gut Check Project, and we appreciate you for being a part of it. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform for podcasts. You can find the GCP on Locals, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Rumble, and more. And you can always check out gutcheckproject.com to find all episodes and interact with the show. Tell your friends and family not to wait to get Gut Checked.